Today, we're talking about everyone's favorite programming language, HTML. Hypertext markup language is the structure of a web page, and while it's not necessarily the hardest syntax to learn, it's vital to your web applications. Let's get started. Welcome to the Ladybug Podcast. I'm Kelly. I'm Allie. And I'm Emma, and we're debugging the tech industry. AWS Amplify is a suite of tools and services that enables developers to build full-stack serverless and cloud-based web and mobile apps using their framework or technology of choice on the front end. Using Amplify, you can quickly get up and running with things like hosting, authentication, managed GraphQL, serverless functions, APIs, machine learning, chatbots, and storage for files like images, videos, and PDFs. Amplify is built especially in a way to enable traditionally front-end developers like myself to be successful because they can use their existing skill set to build real-world full-stack apps that in the past would require deep knowledge around backend, DevOps, and scalable infrastructure. The Amplify console then allows you to use a GitHub repository to deploy a globally available CDN with CI and CD built in. To learn more, visit aws-amplify.github.io. Hypertext markup language. Is this a programming language or not? This is one of my favorite arguments. And by favorite, I mean I get really annoyed by people being like, HTML is not a programming language because it's technically a markup language according to the name. But Emma... According to the freaking name. I'm sorry, but yeah. like... You're writing a program. That programming is the act of writing a program. So I'm just, I'm going to leave it there. Fine by me. But actually, I do want you to discuss the history a little bit since you did a little bit of research on this. I literally copy and pasted a paragraph from the interweb. But um, the paragraph that I have copied basically stated that in 1980, Tim Berners-Lee, who was a physicist and also a contractor at CERN, uh, he proposed and prototyped Enquire. Uh, which it seems like he just worked on a lot of acronym companies and things. It's true. Enquire seems either it's like a really enthusiastic name in all caps, or it is a an acronym. We'll never know because I'm not. I don't care enough to Google it. But um, basically, it was a system for certain researchers to use and share documents. And then in 1989, he wrote a memo which proposed an internet-based hypertext system. And I think the whole concept here was to link from one document to another. Like, that was the goal of the internet in the beginning. It was for file sharing, if I'm not mistaken. And so that's why things were linked together. And the internet was simply just, it, there were documents and they were linked to each other. Um, and so, you know, Berners-Lee specified HTML. He wrote the browser and server software. And um, that happened all in the late 1990s when I was a small child. Yeah. And to go even further, like, we can break down the name of HTML, like hypertext just means link from one page to another. We see that, or it might even count for links within the same page too. So that's what hypertext is. Things that you can, or text that you can click on and get taken to a different part of the page or a different page. Then markup means that there is different meaning associated with different parts of the content, I think. And what does language mean? <laughs> I don't know if we'll ever know words. If you've if you've ever heard of um, XML, it's very similar to XML, which is extensible markup language. Obviously, they're both markup languages. Um, and XML is, it just defines sets of rules for encoding documents, but it's both human readable and machine readable, which is it makes it really nice. Um, Have any of you worked with an XML API? Have not. No, my 
dad is like super into XML. I'm not really sure why. Like, it seems like a weird thing to fanboy. I was going to say, I've never heard of somebody being into XML, but hey. (laughs) It's so painful. I had to work with the XML API because it was less expensive than a JSON API for this one company, even though it had the same data, which I think is fascinating because there's no reason why it should be cheaper for them to have an XML API than a JSON API. But... It was so painful. And so talking about XML gives me a hangover to that. (laughs) Also, there's maybe worth noting that there's XHTML, which is literally extensible hypertext markup language. So XML-based version of HTML, which is basically like a stricter version of an HTML-based website or application. Very confusing. I don't know any other markup language except for Markdown, which is not markup. It's (laughs) quite not markup. (laughs) Okay. I mean, it's similar. It uses tags to create hierarchies. It's just different. But in any case. So um, I think it's worth talking about the stigma of learning HTML. Like people say it's like a a very basic beginner's thing to learn and that it's not hard. Yeah, they're not wrong. But the thing is, it's not hard to do right, but it's important to do right. And we'll talk about this later, but how you structure your web pages has massive implications on who can use it. Um, so we'll get into that in a little bit. But I think the root, I don't know. Do y'all have to, uh, it, it makes me so angry when I think about this because you're getting on like the the gatekeeping bros who are just like, HTML's not a programming language, which they're technically right. HTML is not hard. It's like they're also technically right, <laughs> but it doesn't mean it's not important. And yeah, especially like understanding like semantic HTML and how to accurate, you know, how to set it up appropriately for screen readers and all of the accessibility parts. It's not just simple, you know, writing tags and carrying on with your day. Like there is a right way to do it. I also want to mention... I would not have gotten my job at Spotify if I didn't have an understanding of HTML. And you won't either. I mean, like a lot of jobs now, they used to be super JavaScript heavy in the interview process. And now a lot of front-end development roles are realizing that you need to be well-versed in CSS and HTML as well. And they are um, asking explicit questions about HTML and CSS. So make sure that you know it. So let's learn about it. I know this is a very basic episode because we're talking about basically the structure of HTML. But I don't know. I feel like there's something to learn for everybody in here, even if you've been programming for 20 years. Do we want to start off with how we learned HTML? Because I feel like that could be an interesting story for some of us. Mm-hmm. Totally. That's a good That's a good thing. Why don't you start, Allie? Oh, mine is not very interesting. I just um, <laughs> was trying to add like skills to my resume. And so I... Yeah learned HTML on Code Academy. And I love how you were like, this is going to be interesting for people. Oh, mine's not that interesting. <laughs> no, mine is not, but I feel like Kelly and Emma, yours might be more interesting. So Kelly, how about you? Yeah, so I wanted to learn how to code because I wanted to customize my guild on Neopets, which is basically just like a community. And in order to do so, you need to know basic HTML. So my dad bought me a book that's called HTML Goodies. And I basically learned how to code from a book. And this book came out in 1999, which I think 99 would have been like uh, HTML4, I guess. So uh, we've been, I mean, HTML5 came out in 2014. So 
I was learning how to build websites using HTML with like frame sets and stuff like that. Let's also very quickly mention the fact that while JavaScript has more frequent updates to their standards, HTML doesn't. Like as long as I've been a web developer, so like I graduated in 2015 and it wasn't really until my real first run in with HTML in like a professional setting was not until like 2016. Like I had used it in MySpace, like to customize my MySpace without recognizing that's what I was doing. Um, but yeah, it wasn't until I joined IBM as a web developer um, and I had to teach myself web development essentially um, through Codecademy, uh, like Ali, which I think is a great platform, by the way. I think I used Treehouse, Team Treehouse and Codecademy. Um, and yeah, it's one of those things people take for granted. Yeah, should we kind of get into the syntax of it? Let's do it. Also, I wonder if there's going to be an HTML6 at some point. There's got to be, right? Well, oh, yeah. This was me, like, going off my tangent. So, like, JavaScript has more frequent updates. Like, the last big release of JavaScript is ES2015 or ES6. Um, So, I guess it was five years ago versus if HTML5 came out in 2014. It's only a year difference. So, it makes me feel like... But that was a major release. I mean, yeah, that's true. Even the minor releases are, are still things that we are actively using in our day to day, even though we're, you know, we might not be totally aware that yeah. it is a minor release. But I mean, HTML5 was the last, <laughs> I think, like pretty significant release of any sense in, in HTML. I don't know how much has actually changed over time since then. You know what's also funny to me? I don't know if you did this, but when I was creating my resumes, I would always add like HTML5, ES6. Like I would add the the version (laughs) number on there to be like, I'm proficient in the newest one. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I definitely did with a CSS3. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, let's get elemental. Huh. Why don't you explain elements to us? Okay, so I love the analogy. It's a little creepy, but I love the analogy of comparing web technologies to the human body. So I guess I could also be like if you're building a house, but I'm going to go with the body because I feel like everyone knows what bodies are. I hope. <laughs> um, I guess everyone knows what houses are too, but in any case, um, you can think of HTML as like your skeleton. It's It makes up the structure of you as a human. CSS is going to be like your skin, your eyes. Think, that sounds so creepy. It's almost, it's going to be almost Halloween, right? Like it's fine. Um, it's like your visual characteristics on top of your skeleton. <laughs> JavaScript is like your your functionality, maybe like your voice and how you speak and your mannerisms. Um, and an element you can think of as maybe like a limb on your body. So an arm or a leg um, or a head <laughs> or a foot. <laughs> um, so yeah, an HTML element is like a an encapsulated element or I'm trying to think of another like a synonym for element because I hate defining things with the same word. Um, it's like a component essentially. So you've when you look at a web page, you have navigation, you have a main content area, you have uh, a footer. Those things are elements and they uh, are defined by start tags and end tags. Um, so anything in between that is encapsulated within that element. So if you have navigation, um, within your nav element, you might put an unordered list with list items. Um, but there are just a couple of elements that are self-closing. I'm not sure why. Like, why are some self-closing? Why are some not? I'm not really sure. I guess because you can't place anything inside of them, maybe? Yeah, like, image. Okay. Image is. Ah, okay. That makes sense. Yeah, image is like a self-closing tag. And the, you would have uh, an opening bracket, the word or the letters IMG, and then 
like the closing. Is it a forward slash or a backslash? I can never remember. Forward slash. Okay, forward slash and then the closing bracket. Um, and I, we'll try to include visuals with this. So make sure you're checking out our Twitter and our website because it's a little bit hard to explain these technical concepts. But um, yeah. Yeah. That's the that's the basis of it. That's good. I like the the human body analogy. You're right. A little creepy, but we're going to go with it. So going a little bit deeper, uh, we then get to attributes. So attributes are going to provide some kind of additional information about the elements. And they're always specified in the start tag. So they usually come in name value pairs. So name equals value. And these are going to be things like classes or IDs, or let's say you have a video tag, you could say like autoplay, or you had an input tag. It's going to be like the type of input tag. It is like input type equals radio or input type equals text. So you're always using these attributes to define the elements or else it's not really doing too much. I guess you can just have div, 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 div or whatever, but that's kind of boring and useless. That would be a wild web page. <laughs> All divs. So speaking of attributes, you mentioned classes and IDs, and I think this is a really important distinction. We use these for a few different things. We can use them to style our components with CSS. We can also use them to dynamically generate things with JavaScript as well. We can use them to select elements. Um, and so what is the difference between a class and an ID? Well, a class is for a group of elements, and an ID is for just one element. So it's unique. You can only have one element with a specific ID. I think it's important to note you should only have one yeah. element <laughs> with the idea. Like, it's not technically going to, like, blow up your app. Actually, we did try this, I think, on JS Party, maybe, where, like, we added a couple of IDs, and I think it will only return the first one, but it's still not semantically correct to to add in. They should really add some sort of error prevention on that, but... Yeah, I mean, that's the thing with HTML and CSS is it silently fails. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't think about your that. Your page just doesn't work the way that you want it to, whereas JavaScript, it'll actually throw a full error message, whereas something like HTML or CSS, it just doesn't look the way you want it to or it doesn't mm -hmm. work the way you want it to. And the browser can actually fix a lot of issues with HTML itself, too. Like, So if you have missing closed tags, a lot of times the browser can figure that out and add in those closing or the missing end tags. I think... Um it's also like, I like the analogy of thinking about humans. Let's keep going with the skeleton thing. It's, it's not skeleton related. It's actually human related this time. But like, if you have a class full of students, you could have three students with the same first name, right? And you can think of that as a class. Like, it's okay if you have three students named, I don't know. I'm, th I'm trying to think of a cool Bob. name, but like, that's not cool. <laughs> How I about think it's cool. Anybody <laughs> named Bob listening, don't be insulted, please. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Anyway, um, but in terms of IDs, you can think of that maybe as like your social security number where only one person should have that number. Like if you have two people with the same social security number, that's a huge issue. But um, you can also have multiple classes too. So like, you know, you might have two people with the same last name in the same class. So they might have a class with their first name and a class with their second name. So you can chain these classes on. Um, and that's... Uh, it's nice if you have, like, for example, like if you have two different buttons, um, they might each have a class of button, but then the first one might have a class of button red, and then the second one might have a class of button green. So they can have multiple classes that mean different things. And we do a deep dive into CSS on some previous episodes that might be worth listening to if you want to learn a little bit more about classes and ideas. And, and 
there are some other things that we, I, I guess we cover more than just classes and IDs in those episodes. So might be worth listening to. It is worth listening to. Um, <laughs> I hope. Um, all right. Let's talk about the structure of a web page. Allie, why don't you kick us off talking about headings? Okay. <laughs> I'm like looking at this like, are you talking about the head? Like, what are we? Okay. Uh, or like a header, you know, you know, the. Okay, so lots of different things with head in it in HTML, so I got a little bit confused here. But a heading is like a title for either the page itself or the sections. And there's lots of different ones with different numbers, H1, H2, H3, H4. I think he goes to H7. That is H. Oh, maybe. I usually go to H6, I thought. Okay, it might be each sex. Yeah, I, it is. Okay, okay. I added another one. Whoops. Um, It'd be like super teeny tiny text. <laughs> Baby text. Um, but these are supposed to go in order. So you have one each one tag at the top of your page, and it's the title of the whole entire page. And then um, you might have some each two tags, but then within there you'd have each three tags. And then within the each three tags, you'd have each four tags. And they are used to title different sections of your page. It's worth also noting that there used to be a lot more of an emphasis on proper ordering for these heading tags uh, for SEO. But I think over there, you know, as, as Google has changed their algorithms, there's been less of a focus on on that structure, that architecture, but I still think it's good practice to have the heading, the H1 tag at the top of the page and kind of work your way down to, you know, go into subheadings and then those those smaller headings. So worth noting. I always thought it was really important for accessibility too, but I could be totally wrong on that. That's the only reason it's important. It has nothing to do with the text size or anything of that nature. It's solely for accessibility and screen readers because when someone's using a screen reader, they're using the accessibility tree to navigate your document. And if you don't use headings, they can't jump to different sections and they have no idea what your web page looks like. It's the same with um, landmark roles, landmark regions, landmark regions being the main content area, navigation, footer, aside, things of that nature. I'm glad to have that confirmed. Also, too, I want to make like just very clear that like your H4 and your H5 while an H4 is larger in terms of semantics, more important, uh, they could be the same font size. Like, it has nothing to do with the visuals or the type. I think the default unstyled version, it goes from largest to smallest in terms of font size, but you can totally change that. I think it's important to go back to Emma's analogy of the body being the HTML and how the styling, you can make it look however you want. You can make it so your H5s are the biggest ones on the page. That doesn't matter. It's more for the meaning of the tag. That's what we're using these for. The things that come underneath headings are known as paragraphs. Now, I want to make this really important note as well, because when I was starting out as a web developer, I threw everything into divs and spans, and we'll talk more about those a little bit later. Um, it's very, very important if you have textual content that it comes inside of a text element, meaning a header tag, H1 through H6, or a paragraph, or um, I think there are a couple others for textual content. But if you have like, if you're writing a blog, your blog content must be in paragraphs. Like otherwise, it's just not semantic. Like just, it's not that hard. It's one letter. You can do it. In fact, it's shorter, less text than a diverse span, one letter instead of three or four. We just got so awkward and I love it. <laughs> so one thing that really tripped me up when I was beginning HTML was block versus inline elements because they confused the literal shit out of me. So 
all elements in a web page are either going to be a block or they're going to be inline. Um, the I don't know, the curated definition, block starts on a new line, it takes the full width. These are things like div, form, heading tags, ordered and unordered lists, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Inline elements and in contrast, they only take up as much width as they need. Um, these are elements like span, anchor tags, buttons, labels, and images. Um, but there are also um, implications to inline elements, such as like you can't set margins on them, for example. And we talked about this in our CSS episode where you, if you need to set like margin or add spacing um, to an inline element, you can set the display to inline block where it gives it the ability to inherit some block properties like being able to have spatial recognition, um, but it maintains its inline flow. Um, and yeah, it, it was just really confusing to me learning this originally. And you can think of block elements as like if you boarded a plane and let's say it's a three by three configuration where every row can sit six people while well, you have two rows of three. Um, if you are doing a block level format, you can only have one person in each row because every new person is a block element. They're going to shift to the next line versus if you have inline elements, you can fill every single seat in that plane, which I don't recommend doing right now. Wear your mask, please. Um, so that's kind of the high level analogy of block versus inline. I agree. Like that was something that was very confusing to me at first. And especially once I started using divs and then I hopped on this train to use divs for literally everything because I finally understood what a div was, which is obviously not the right thing to do. I think it's also worth noting that something we didn't touch on with paragraphs is there are certain elements that cannot nest inside others. So you can't put a div tag inside a paragraph tag, for example. It'll break the paragraph. Yeah, and if you ever want to check these rules run an HTML validator on your code. So you can just search them like HTML validator. And I think W3 has one and it will make sure that your HTML is running, is following all the HTML rules. Ellie, do you want to talk to us about formatting? Yeah. So there are also some HTML tags that you can use to format your text. So for example, B makes your text Bold, kind of just like bolding something, and uh, well, everybody knows what bolding is. Okay, I don't need to explain this. Um, strong is for important text. I is for italic text. M with an E M is emphasized text. Um, there's a bunch of different ones for formatting your um, text in different ways. There were also some fun ones like marquee that used to exist oh, and I used to it. make your text scroll across the page. RIP to the marquee tag. It was like the blink. Blink, yeah. I just wanted to make this very clear that a lot of these formats have specific meanings. So don't use bold when you really mean to use strong emphasis or mark. So the strong element represents text of a certain importance. I'm trying to think like, I don't know, maybe this is an error message in your web page if you're filling out a form that's important to someone. Uh, the M tag or for emphasis puts emphasis on some sort of text. Um, and then mark represents a text of certain relevance. The B tag doesn't really have much semantic information. And in all honesty, I would recommend using CSS to bold your text with font weight bold or changing the font weight uh, to a higher increment of 100 if if you plan to bold your text. Like the B tags, I, I don't want to say deprecated, but I would use CSS. It was that. something that I always found, and that's exactly what I was actually going to talk about, is I always 
thought that they could be used interchangeably. I didn't understand the difference between the two. I think another example of, since we are already on this uh, this path of talking about wearing a mask, you would put, please wear a mask in strong as opposed to be, because it's very important to emphasize that point. I think the same thing goes for like the EM versus I as well. Providing the emphasis versus just italicizing the text. Mm-hmm. Did the same thing. Definitely. Definitely. I wonder if they're going to remove the default styling for those types of tags because they are really meant for screen readers. So let's talk lists because, again, this is one of the things that I just always used unordered lists for everything before I understood that there are other types of lists. So talking here about three types, ordered, unordered, and description lists. Ordered lists are marked with numbers by default. You can change it by declaring the type. Uh, That is an attribute. Um, Unordered lists are marked by bullets by default, and you can change the type actually by declaring the style. So I wonder why that's the case for unordered lists that requires style change as opposed to an attribute. What what do you mean exactly? Like list style type is a style that you're changing, whereas the ordered list is literally declaring a type, which is an attribute within the element. For ordered lists, there are different types of types. You can do the default decimal numbers, one, two, three, four. You can do alphabetical lists, so A, B, C, D, or lowercase A, B, C, D. You define that as like OL type equals one, which is the default, or type equals A, capital A, if you want to do capital A, B, C, D, E for the list. But for unordered lists, it's actually a style that you change from like the default bullet to like disk Mm -hmm. or something like that, where you change list style type, which is a style attribute, not an actual element attribute. I feel like for the order, it kind of changes the meaning to have ABC versus one, two, three. Yeah. It's also, I mean, it's worth noting that order lists also have like the support, the list style type CSS attribute as well um, for declaring different types of like lists for various um, like in Hebrew or um, there are weird examples, lower Greek, lower Latin. So, I mean, point being list style type is still supported for uh, ordered lists, but it's like the requirement for unordered lists. I don't know. I, it could be because you're, it, it does change the meaning. That, that could very well be it. Anyway, third type being description lists. And I actually don't ever remember using description lists, but um, I actually, uh, one of the dev tests we recently received for something that we were building out for uh, FAQs as part of our, like building out like an FAQ section on a Shopify theme is one of the things that we do during our dev test. And one of the developers used a description list instead. And it kind of makes sense because description being a list of terms with a description for each term. So you'd use DL to, to, to declare a new list, DT for the term and DD for the description. So I don't know. That's really cool if you're writing like a book using a website and you need to have a glossary of terms. Yeah, that's a that's a very good example. Hmm. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> now, for your reward, please discuss semantic elements. Okay, cool. So before you reach for a div or a span, which we're going to talk about in a second, you should absolutely look to see if there is a semantic element that kind of describes the type of content that you're going to write. They 
mean things to visually impaired or blind users that are leveraging assistive technology, like a screen reader. Um, so like if you're using a screen reader to navigate a website, um, you would say like submit button, you know, type submit or um, article, and it, it'll allow the users to jump around to different sections of your web page. These are semantic elements because they tell screen readers something, and not just screen readers, but like programmers and other people looking at source code. It tells people what this type of element is and, and why it's being used. Um, there are around 100 elements, and you probably have heard of things like footer, header, article, aside, things like that. Um, you can find full lists out there on like, you know, different websites. <laughs> On the internet, internet, if you Google like HTML tags, um, you can find lists. Um, I think the W3C, the Worldwide Web Consortium, has a good list. Mozilla also has a good list. Um, You should definitely be reaching for these as much as possible. Um, But we are going to talk about um, Div and Span, which are definitely useful. Uh, We'll talk about those in a little. So don't skip ahead. It's all really important. Just keep listening. I feel like we keep bringing them up and should just spoil it for our listeners at this point. Okay. Uh, First of all, I don't know where they got these names from. Um, Not really sure where div came from. I don't know if it... Can someone look this up while I explain what it is? I'm doing it right now. So div and span. Div is a block element, meaning it's going to... Every new div will break into a new line. Spans are inline elements, so you can use them. One thing I use spans for is... Within a paragraph, for example, if I need to make a certain word a certain color or if I have inline uh, code snippets or something and I want to give it some extra styling and I don't want it to break out of the paragraph, you can use a span to do that. It just gives you the ability to select a certain word in a paragraph, for example. Um, Why would you even use div and span? This is a great question. Sometimes you need additional wrappers for things. to create flexbox or grid layouts, you want to group certain elements together, but there's not necessarily a semantic element uh, that you can use to create this differentiation and grouping. That's where you would use div and span. Um, but yeah, screen readers don't understand the content within it. Uh, and we'll mention Aria in a little bit. I guess I can mention it. I should just stop deferring things because, you know, it's relevant. Aria is... Um, Accessible Rich Internet Applications, I think is what it stands for. And there are a series of different attributes uh, and tags that you can use to make your non-semantic elements like div and span semantic. Um, You can do this by setting roles on a div to indicate what type of an element this is, if it's relevant. Um, You can indicate to screen readers that, hey, this is an accordion. It's expanded, so the content is available, or it's not visible, or things of that nature. It just tells screen readers additional information. And you should be doing this with your um, HTML elements as much as you can. Now, that being said, like you wouldn't add a role, an ARIA role onto a semantic element. So like if I have a nav bar and I've used the nav semantic HTML element, you don't need to tell ARIA or, or a screen reader that, hey, this is a nav. It knows that by default. But if you are creating a custom component and you have to use a div, um, and let's say it's a navigation, you need to add role of navigation on there to let them know that, hey, this is a navigation. Don't do that. Please don't do that. But I'm saying you should, if if you need to use a, a div or a span, you should be telling a screen reader what it's for if it's relevant. And going back to what a div is, the name came from HTML content division element. Whoa. Oh, oh that makes sense. sense. That makes so much sense. It's amazing that we've been using divs for so long. And we're just like, yes, this is a div. No idea what it means, but we're going to use them. <laughs> so, Ellie, 
links versus buttons. Do you want to kind of explain the difference between the two and how to properly use them? Yeah, so a link is hypertext. So a link allows you to go from one page to another or navigate within a page to jump down to another spot in it versus a button is for doing a clickable action. So if you want to have something to happen when you click on something, then you should use a button for that. And that doesn't mean you move to another page. They have different meanings. So it's really important to honor that and to use a link to move from one piece of content to another and to use a button if you want to have some other action such as um, download or maybe sign up or submit a form or some other fancy JavaScript thing. I think, too, this is important that styling and semantics are two separate um, problems to solve. So you'll see a lot of anchor tags or links that are styled like a button, and that's okay. Just make sure that you're using the proper HTML element for it, and you can style it to look like a button or style it to look like a link. Like buttons that look like links are actually called tertiary buttons in general. So we have like primary, secondary, and tertiary buttons that, you know, I'm not going to go into the full semantics of, you know, the styling of them, but just make sure that you're not picking a button because you want it styled like a button. Like make sure you're using the appropriate tag. This is a very interesting episode, once again, because we're spending over 30 minutes talking about HTML, and it's something that I just tend to use on a daily basis, so I never actually sit here and think about it and talk about it. I just do it. One of the things I was really confused about when I was beginning my web dev journey was how to actually include CSS and JavaScript into my HTML files. I know it's not that difficult, but it definitely was confusing for me how to link to different things and how to include different things. So in terms of styling, you have three different options to include CSS in your web pages. The first is going to be inline styling. So this would be setting a style attribute on your HTML elements and including CSS that way. I highly, highly discourage this. You can go to listen to our CSS episodes if you're interested in learning a little bit more about that. But it all comes down to CSS specificity and how styles are applied. So I'd recommend listening to that episode. So you can do it in line. It's not recommended. The second way you can do it is by adding a style tag to your head. Um, the head of your HTML document is not rendered visually for the users to see, but it includes things like links to um, CSS style sheets or metadata or things of that nature. So it's more for, I think, the browser than for the user. Um, So you can just include an opening and closing style tag and write your CSS directly in the head of your document. But this can also get a little bit messy and large if you're including large amounts of styling. So the way that I would recommend including CSS in your HTML documents is to use external style sheets. So you would just create uh, a new file with a .css extension, and you can write all of your CSS in that file. And then you can just import it into the head of your document using a link tag. So I think it's link rel equals style sheet, uh, href equals, and then the path, the relative path to your CSS file. This is a self-closing tag, which confused me because when we talk next about how you can end JavaScript, it's a little bit different. (laughs) That always confused the crap out of me, how like, the JavaScript script tags are not self-closing, but the CSS ones are. But I think it's because you can, well, no, that doesn't make sense. Okay, my explanation wasn't going to make sense. Because um, you can put stuff between the JavaScript ones. But you can also with the style tag, yeah. but not the link tag. Yeah, exactly. So, if, Allie, do you want to tell us a little bit more about how to include JavaScript in your HTML files? Yeah, so 
for JavaScript, you can link them just like you can with styles. Um, you can also, and you can use the script tag for that with a source. You can also write your JavaScript in line by using a script tag and just writing your JavaScript code in there. But again, that's going to get really long. So normally you would use that script tag and include it. One really important thing to note is with your CSS, you normally include it in the head because you want your page to be styled when it's loaded for the user. But JavaScript is going to take a while for your browser to parse. And if you put it in the head, then it may make the rest of the page loading slower. So for JavaScript, we're going to put it at the bottom of the body instead of in the head tag usually. Or you can use like defer, which is an attribute, and that would make it so that it loads in at the end as well. And the other important piece for this is if you have JavaScript code that manipulates your DOM or your HTML, you need that HTML to actually load first before that JavaScript runs, or else it's not going to be able to find these HTML elements that haven't that don't exist yet. For the longest time, I struggled with adding JavaScript to, like, like, as far as making a site performance, that was probably one of the hardest things I, or one of the things that took me longest to figure out in terms of, like, deferring scripts and where to actually put it and what makes the most sense. So that is, uh, I think I just struggled learning JavaScript for a really long time in general, so I don't know if that's something specific. So I don't know. No, I still yeah. struggle to learn it, to be honest. Okay, one other thing is how to run an HTML file, and you can just create a file with .html and then open it in your browser. This is something that I did not understand at all because I was writing Python and C++ before I learned HTML. And so I always had had like run the script from the command line, and I was like, how do you run an HTML file from the command line? Like, how does this work? And I was so confused by it, was Googling it over and over again, like, how do I run an HTML file? And obviously, there's not a Google source for that, because I think for most people, it's pretty apparent, but I don't know. Just got to put that out there for anybody I think listening. That's, no, that's really important because what we today or what some people might deem is like easy and how could you possibly not know that? A lot of people don't know. And like, there's no shame in that. Um, so yeah, one other thing too, if you're using like VS Code or Sublime or Atom or another cool text editor, code editor, a lot of them will do like open in browser and a lot of them will do hot reloading where if you make a change to your HTML or your CSS, it'll auto refresh your browser for you. But yeah, it was um, to Ali's point, like once I figured out I could open it in the browser, you'll notice too that the URL is obviously different. It's a local file. So you'll see like file colon forward slash forward slash and then the path to your, to your file. Um, but yeah, that could be really tricky for people. Yeah. What's for me? Speaking of really tricky for people, I think one of the things that's worth talking about is course. Because this, I think I run into course issues all the time. And I, it took me a really long time to understand kind of what was going on. So course stands for cross-origin resource sharing. And basically, it's this mechanism that allows restricted access to resources on, on one domain when it's coming from a separate domain uh, like just a different domain. And for most most things like images and scripts and iframes, if we're, you know, there's still use cases for iframes, I guess, um, you can freely embed that kind of cross-origin content. But let's say you're doing like an Ajax request. If you don't enable the, like the cross-origin, um, by default, it's same origin. So if you try to do a, an Ajax request to a different domain, you're going to get a cores error. Um, understanding the difference between like, 
the pre-flight requests versus uh, like a more simple example. Um, I'm just going to add a link to the Mozilla documents for this because it's a it could be an entire episode explaining exactly how course works. I think we should like maybe next season because it's really tricky. I remember the first time I encountered a cores error. I was at IBM and like it confused the living daylights out of me. And you know, I think like you have to go and like get a special header to allow resource your resource to access. It's like so confusing. I think that would be a good episode to do. Let us know if you're listening and even like an episode on cores because it's very confusing. Yeah, it, like even now, like. It takes me a moment when I when I find or experience some kind of error, I'll be like, oh, yeah, of course. So it still doesn't immediately register with me when that's always the issue. For sure. Let's talk. Uh, let's kind of start to wrap things up uh, by discussing templating languages and different ways to generate HTML. I remember, um, you know, one of my first jobs at a college, like they were using pug and handlebars, um, which was very confusing to me. If you've never seen the syntax for this, it's like there are no opening and closing tags. It's just like the name of the element that you want to use. And like you can append classes with just adding like a dot class name. Um, I, I recommend checking out like the syntax for these, but they're templating languages. I'm not sure really the benefit to using these other than maybe developer preference. Like, is there an actual use case for these? Yeah. So when you're working, with a backend, you can actually have that backend generate dynamic HTML content. So instead of having a hard-coded HTML page that your developer writes from scratch, you can plug different values into that HTML document. And that's really where these templating languages shine. So you could almost use variables and loops and things like that within your HTML. Oh, okay. That's super cool. Um, the other thing to note is like static site generators. So um, there are several out there. I think Jekyll is one. They have them for different languages. Like there's um, Gatsby is a notable one, but there's also Nuxt and Next. One is Vue and one is React. And I honestly don't know which is which. Um, Vue is essentially Nuxt. It allows React is okay. Next. I, I despise the people that did that <laughs> and named them so similarly. Um, but essentially, they allow you to create like React or Vue or whatever language you're using with that framework um, applications. And then they kind of almost dehydrate or compile down into basic or static HTML, CSS, and JavaScript files, which can be just uploaded to a server, right? So you could upload it to like GitHub pages, for example. Um, you can host your static sites or simple HTML, CSS, and JavaScript through GitHub pages for free, and it's super nice. Um, but they also, I think at least Gatsby rehydrates back into a React application in the browser, which is nice. Um, yeah, this is kind of like the modern version of Pug and Handlebars. Mm -hmm. Not saying that those are completely deprecated or anything like that, but like most modern web apps are using a lot of JavaScript and server-side rendering would be the way to usually do it now. I, I don't really have that much experience with Pug or Handlebars. Like I've occasionally seen it in... Sort of like in code that I've inherited from somebody else, but I've never thought like, yes, I'm going to use one of these in building out, you know, one of our, one of my sites that I built out. I don't know. I used to use them all the time back in the day, but I haven't since the dawn of React and Vue mm -hmm. and such. That's kind of taken the place of them for me. It's always just strange thinking about how, like, libraries and in frameworks just evolve over time and it, like because I learned on HTML4 and the things that I'm building today 
I'm still using some like the basic frameworks because obviously HTML is still HTML, but like the general structure of how I code has just changed so much over time because somebody created something that I'm now using. I don't know. It's just super weird to think about because the whole thing about how the internet works that we talked about in the first episode just kind of, I don't know, it all baffles me. Yeah. Things change so fast. I feel such like a old person with development now a lot of times where I'm just like, I remember the pre-ES6 days when we couldn't use classes for React components and we had to just use objects. But (laughs) (laughs) way back when. (laughs) Way back when, back in my day. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Let's also talk about one of my favorite tools. I think we've talked about this before, but Emmet, which makes writing HTML so much more enjoyable. Instead of having to write out all the tags from scratch, it allows you to use shortcuts and such to generate your HTML. Such a nice tool. This is really nice if you're trying to do, like, I use this for navigation a lot because navigation, when I build one, it's usually a nav tag with an unordered list inside with list items. And inside those list items are anchors. And generally, when I add class to these things, and um, Emmet allows me to just type like nav and then a bracket and then ul and a bracket and li you know, with the asterisk times five, for example, to say five list items. And then inside of that, I need an anchor. Um, and you just, you write this out in one line, like a few characters, and then you hit tab and it'll auto-generate things for you. And you can even add classes, IDs, things of that nature, attributes um, using this shorthand. And it's really, really useful. It's so nice. I think the more, and, and honestly, like I could probably look up all of the things that you can do with Emmet, but I feel like I enjoy just kind of like playing in VS Code to see what actually ends up working in the end. And then I was like, oh, okay. It's a lot of trial and error when I'm using Emmet, but I use it a lot. Okay, so I think that's enough talking about HTML. We can I don't want to do a deep dive into all the all of the HTML things, so we'll just leave it at that. So let's kind of shift into shout outs for this week. Um, Emma, what is your shout out? My shout out is an old shout out, but it's a, a good one. It's this book by John Duckett. I used this to learn HTML and CSS back in the day. It's called HTML and CSS. Um, <laughs> but it's a visual guide and it explains things that were previously extremely foreign to me, like including padding, margin, the box model from CSS, things like that. Um, it does so beautifully. So that is going to be my shout out for this week. I have I have the JavaScript and jQuery version of this book. Yeah, I yeah. used that one too. It was really good. I mean, I didn't use the jQuery portion of it, but the JavaScript one was really, really useful. I hope I hope they updated it though for like ESX. Agree. All right, Allie, what's your shout out? Mine is for Egghead. I have been making a lot of videos with them recently and also just using their content a ton to get up to speed with new jobs. So been really enjoying the little videos and having fun with it. So they're my shout out. How about you, Kelly? So I was not on last week's episode because we don't have all three of us on a guest episode, but I want to give a shout out to Daniel for, I don't know, staying married to me for five years because we celebrated our fifth anniversary on September 12th. So that's a long time. It's a long time to I like, like stay in the same room as somebody. That's so cute because yeah. my anniversary with Thomas is September 11th. Oh, we're one day apart. That's cute. My dad got yeah. remarried on September 11th as well. Oh wow! Are you are you going to say you and Andrew have so many anniversaries? <laughs> yeah, that I have. We don't know any of them. <laughs> just <laughs> I don't know. Do you just like wake up one morning and be like, "We're going to celebrate our anniversary today"? 
No, we just have never done them. Yeah, I feel like it's really uncommon these days. Like, it's less common to have, like, a proper date. Because I feel the same way where it was, like, one of those things we talked about after the fact of, like, let's just pick a day. That makes sense. Like, that we think was around the time. I think it's only, like, a specific date for us because we got married on that day. But, like, our dating anniversary is just, you know. The marriage one's big. Yeah. That's important. So this was fun. If you liked this episode, tweet about it. We'd love to read your feedback, and we always read all of the tweets that come in. And this week, we'll be giving one tweeter a copy of HTML and CSS by John Duckett because Emma loves this book so much, and that is exactly why. Uh, We post new podcasts every Monday, so make sure to subscribe to be notified and leave us a review. See you next week. If you have multiple people editing the same Google Doc, it gets confusing.